0: This is the second in a series of uh, talks and explorations related to uh, bringing our practice into more challenging situations uh, interpersonally, individually, in relationship uh, to the world. How, the question really is, how do we, how do we keep the intention to manifest, to develop and manifest freedom, awareness, a kind heart, skillful action when the situations are more difficult. And sometimes when they're very difficult. How do we do this? So this in a way builds on our basic practice. This is not beginning practice, even though, of course, when we are beginning, we often have difficult situations. And sometimes we, in fact, begin practice because of difficulties, right? (laughs) And we're looking for ways to find more balance, be more skillful, be more kind with difficulties. But the beginning practices are really about, uh, especially, about developing perspective, developing more clarity, more wisdom, more awareness, uh, having more connection with the kind heart. And sometimes we actually, um, to the extent that it's possible in our life, sometimes we actually um, take a break from some difficulties. To the extent that that's possible, right? For some, it's not exactly possible. Uh, But some people might uh, maybe have a period, that certainly was true for me, uh, a more inward period when we start practicing and we may not attend. I was, when I was first starting practicing, I was more of an activist, right? And I actually um, pulled back some from those activities when I was first meditating. I didn't consciously say, now is a time for inner development, I will not. act so much in these ways. I didn't say that consciously, but it was some way that I felt I needed some uh, space, some uh, boundaries, in order to develop. And and again, that's in in a sense a luxury and a privilege. And to have that, not everyone does. But then at a certain time, (coughs) it's very important for our practice not to be only in a way a refuge in a uh, safe, protected environment, but to have our practice be able to both uh, meet the difficulties of our own lives more fully and also go out into the world and bring the practice out into all the parts of our lives. So, we sometimes say of this practice that the horizon is no part of our lives left out. Whether that means none of our individual parts, that we will bring this practice to places which are hidden or sometimes places of wounds or places that we haven't wanted to go, whether it's personal or interpersonal or in the family situation or what. We also bring it out into the world, so no part left out, not the part of ourselves that is that of a, a citizen or that of a participant in our world. So. We can bring our practice ultimately to everything in our lives. That's the horizon, and that's challenging. And we need tools and perspectives for that. So ultimately it means we are willing to face the difficulties and bring the spirit of practice there. And we're even, you know, willing to face even the large issues of our time and bring our practice to what? To to racism or to climate issues. You know, and how do we do that? And how, Because actually what the world deeply needs are people who are going to help in those ways who have the capacities that we're talking about here. Awareness, compassion, capacities for forgiveness, um, clarity of action and so forth. So that's um, the general horizon. And so in these four weeks, I'm focusing especially on developing development of what we call heart practices that help us to work with difficult or challenging situations, a variety of different kinds. And I think next week I'll especially focus on uh, compassion practice and bringing more compassion in. And so uh, today what I want to do is talk more generally for a short time about the, the 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 general tools that we bring to difficult situations, particularly ones that tend to shut our hearts down, and then give a little more focus on forgiveness practice. And my intention, and maybe someone you can help me, my intention is to leave a lot of time for discussion, which I'm not always good at, and please forgive me for that. (laughs) I'm not always good at that. Sometimes I say that. I say, okay, i want going to have a lot of discussion, and I don't do it. I'm I'm tracking that, just so you know. And, uh, and so, because I, I, there was a lot of life last time, and there, there are a lot of, uh, how should we say, there are a lot of tricky aspects about all of this. Tricky aspects about forgiveness, tricky, subtle, difficult, confusing aspects. We want to get to those, and it often comes out in the discussion. So, um, a, few, a few general ways that we approach difficult situations. And again, thinking of this as a more intermediate or advanced practice, it really presupposes most of our basic practices of mindfulness, cultivation of wisdom, uh, development of the open heart, and so forth. So first is, and these um, these are resources, this is almost like a toolbox. Okay, you have a difficult situation. Here's what you should have in your toolbox, right? And the first is a good attitude. (laughs) And uh, it's like an attitude of, not an attitude of, woe is me, or cursing the situation, but it's an attitude of, oh, a difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a difficulty. An opportunity to grow, or and so on, and so on. Wrote to me, I think. I think someone who comes regularly to this gathering is not here, and I think someone actually has a new book coming out with this title. Uh, you know, it's like another effing growth experience, <laughs> or another effing growth opportunity, right? And so, but seriously, um, what is it like to have that attitude, or at least have that attitude some, right? That this is a difficulty. And, you know, our conditioning is just to go into this is, oh, lousy, bad luck. You know, I wish this wasn't happening. And whether it's uh, any kind of difficulty, a conflict, something challenging has happened. And I think we all know that, we, that this, is, um, this is not easy, that we have strong conditioning that uh, categorizes... Um, um, good experiences and bad experiences into different categories, and so-called difficult experiences are classified as bad, and they're to be um, um, eliminated if possible. Um, This is independent of the fact that actually virtually everyone would agree that where we really learn is by actually having challenging experiences and coming through them, right? And so it's almost like we're saying, I just want to have pleasant experiences, and not learn a thing in my life. (laughs) And and I actually saw this, I think I remember there was a time about 15 years ago, when I saw that I had a deep um, inner contradiction. I really was committed to learning, but I really never wanted to make mistakes. (laughs) Do you know that one? (laughs) Do you see how they don't go together? (laughs) That there's something about the learning process which involves challenging and mis- challenges and <coughs> mistakes. And I know I had a lot of inner <coughs> resistance, and maybe you do too. Maybe it's still there. And so first, this first perspective is at least having a little part of ourselves saying, a challenging situation, you know. Um, Let me go into this with an attitude that there might be something to learn. Let me go into this at least wanting to bring my... Um, my the best parts of myself, my skills, my awareness, my mindfulness, my wisdom, my compassion into the situation. Um, In the Tibetan Lojong teachings, there's a very concise way to say what I just took five minutes to say, which is turn all obstacles into the path of practice. So that's the first pointer and somehow to uh, somehow to have a little light go on when there's a difficulty and say, let me at least bring my practice to it. We don't have to say, oh, wonderful, a new learning opportunity. You know, or there, there's a line that I love a lot uh, from uh, the 8th century writer Shanti Deva, who is writing in, in the chapter in the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life on patience. And he says, just like a treasure appearing Unexpectedly in my home, I should be grateful to have a difficult person for that person assist me in my conduct of awakening. Okay, that's the first point. Okay, and related to that is a second point, which is that when we actually start taking difficulties as practice, we can become very interested in our own reactivity. And Again, this is where practice moves into its intermediate or advanced places. And we actually become interested in when we get stuck, when we get lost, when the mind is reactive, when we judge others, when we judge ourselves, when we get angry, when we have some fear, some anxiety, we say, again, we can say, uh, oh, something interesting to explore. Uh, and maybe, maybe we don't say it like that. Maybe we say it in our own language, like, Oh, heck. <laughs> Another learning opportunity. I had one yesterday. I thought I would take a break today <laughs> or whatever. And so, um, and so we can actually uh, take. And there's a certain way that at a certain point in practice, we can actually be interested and on the lookout for when I'm reactive, for when I snap at someone. And we can actually take that as something to investigate. And everything changes when we do that. And again, not easy, and I think it presupposes a foundation of mindfulness because we have to track that we're actually, that something's happening. You know, I read just yesterday a study, there's a new study that came out, um, a research study of meditation with particular connection to what's called emotional regulation. And it's exactly this point. Uh, What they found is that when people actually notice, with mindfulness, their state, particularly when they're upset, that noticing actually has a substantial uh, benefit in terms of what's called emotional regulation. Actually without even doing anything, knowing that one is reactive, has very, a number of positive consequences. And that was shown in a research study. That, uh, you know, a very uh, rigorous research study of meditation. They studied people who had the c- capacity for mindfulness and they noticed that something was happening with their whole system because of the mindfulness of the reaction. They would notice that there was some way that they were less lost, less reactive, le- less caught And whatever was happening, more in the language of psychology, more emotionally regulated. Interesting, right? But not surprising for anyone who's been practicing mindfulness. We know that it has um, results when, when we can actually notice what's happening. So that's the second general pointer, is to really be interested in reactivity and study it and be on the lookout for it, particularly in challenging situations. It's not going to solve everything being mindful of reactions but it's a starting point and it really is very very helpful. It can be helpful as well at times to bring in a wisdom dimension. It's with difficulties, and this, can, this is where wisdom really can lead to compassion. Where we can say, let's say of a difficult interaction, it's very connected with forgiveness. We can start to have a sense maybe of what were the causes and conditions that led to this difficult interaction happening. If we have a perennial difficult person, we can sometimes imagine what was there in the person's background. What, what's leading the person to act as he or she is acting? And sometimes reflection on that can be very helpful. Also reflection on what I bring to the difficult situation. Do I find in my mind when I have a difficult interaction that I am following a certain storyline? Can I be mindful of that storyline? What is my storyline for difficult situations? Do I go to a judgmental position in relation to myself or in relation to others? Can I understand the causes and conditions? especially with something that, where we know something of, of the person. And I've sometimes told the story of how this was very important for me at a certain point in a relationship with someone at work who was, like I sometimes thought, my personal nemesis. Do you have a personal nemesis? (laughs) Or more than one? (laughs) Um, And this was the person in the organization who, who, when I had a great idea, he would be a roadblock, right? Or... and it was just happening right and left. And I remember just getting off a telephone call and it happened again, right? I had this wonderful idea and it looked like it was going to be delayed or blocked and this person also had some power. That's part of the equation, right? And I'd, at a certain point I started to go into my habitual patterns of just, you know, getting in a bad mood and maybe judging him. Which is a, a typical response that many of us might have, and I found, and a th- I started to do that. I just noticed it for a little bit, and then I just said, "I'm doing that again." And then I went to reflection about the causes and conditions in his background, in my background, and in the organization that were leading to what happened. And that was very freeing, and I found I did not go to judgment. And you know, the French have a saying the more we understand, the more we forgive. You know, there's something about understanding, and again, maybe we, we know this from our close relationships where we've had difficulties and where we actually got to know what was going on for another person. There often can be compassion and forgiveness, because we can see how so much of unskillful action comes out of pain or fear or anxiety, or the, like the, in the phrase, hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Do you know that one? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, and uh, we can see that, and there can be some understanding. So, um, first, the attitude. Second, really tracking reactivity. Third, developing wisdom. And then, really developing these, these heart practices uh, that, we're, that we're looking at forgiveness, loving-kindness, compassion, and, and so forth. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to focus mostly right now on the inner practices to work with difficult situations. If we were being comprehensive, I would bring in also how do we act skillfully? How do we, in particular, how do we use skillful speech with difficult interactions? And that's a whole area. And I actually will go more into that in the day long, and then we go into a lot in the retreat. But in these four sessions, I think I'm gonna stay with the inner practices. But just know that we can do wonderful inner practice And if we're going to interact with someone, it would be very helpful to be skillful (laughs) with our speech. Or we can do this wonderful inner practice and then still make a mess. (laughs) Okay, so uh, it means that we need a a big toolbox, right? So uh, more on forgiveness. I mentioned that um, last time that uh, forgiveness practice is this... Very direct practice to attempt to keep a sense of freedom and a kind heart in the midst of difficulties. So it goes very directly, it's really directly about not being bound up with resentment, anger, um, bitterness, <coughs> repetitive storylines, and so forth and about how we keep some sense of freedom and alignment with our deeper values even when difficult things happen, whether difficult relationships or difficult things that lead me to have a difficult time forgiving myself, where I judge myself and it's hard for me to really hold myself with a kind heart, which is, I think, a very uh, strong tendency in this culture. You know, I find certainly from the work I do on judgments that... Uh, uh, I, th- I think that self-judgment is endemic in the culture. Very, very widespread. You know. And forgiveness practice is one of the tools we use when we work with judgments. One of, one of the set of tools. So, I mentioned, and this is important, how forgiveness practice and forgiveness itself uh, can be held in a few different ways. It can be held as a primarily an inner practice which is the way we'll be looking at it here and historically and culturally it's also been often an interpersonal practice and there are different variants of it you know in Buddhist tradition there have been, uh, there have been situations uh, particularly in the monastic orders where people would talk about their unskillful actions before the community and there'd be some way that sometimes called confession, which is more of a Western term, but it's something like announcing one's uh, um, shortcomings to the community where it's received with with kindness. And the, the intention there of uh, uh, forgiveness is particularly to work with a sense of whether there is that bitterness or resentment or, or kind of tight anger that's, that's staying. Um, this is from, this is from 2,500 years ago. And this is um, These two are fools, which is not the usual language of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little judgmental but I think maybe it's the translation, I don't know. Okay. These two are fools, which two? The one who doesn't see his or her own transgression as a transgression and the one who doesn't rightfully pardon another who has confessed his or her transgression. These two are fools. These two are wise. Which two? The one who sees his or her transgression as a transgression. And the one who rightfully pardons another, who we might say forgives another, who has confessed his or her transgression. These two are wise. So there actually are ceremonies in the monastic tradition where one would, in a sense, confess, to use that language, or just say publicly what what there was. And we can find this in all sorts of cultures, in different ways. And there are a lot of different views on forgiveness. In some uh, traditions, uh, I know in Jewish tradition, for example, um, difficult interactions between people, forgiveness can only come from the other person. But uh, some things are actually not forgiven. Murder cannot be forgiven. You know, and I think you have that in Christian tradition. There's a distinction between different sorts of ac- actions for which there can be forgiveness. I'm not going to go there <laughs> so much, but just to acknowledge that. That there are very varied ways that forgiveness is held. But, uh, and so, when we focus on the inner practice, right at, th- at the beginning, I said this in the guided meditation, to, but just to repeat that forgiveness is not about uh, condoning an action, it's not about forgetting an action, it's not about being nice, it's not about um, being a pushover, it's not about uh, giving up uh, ethics, it's not about uh, uh, giving up action. Those are all very, very crucial to forgiveness. Forgiveness is about uh, actually coming to work with what's um, there in one's own being where there's reactivity Again, resentment, unworked out anger, and so forth. That's a very crucial point. And There's a nice, I found something uh, yesterday, uh, a dialogue between the Dalai Lama and the psychologist Paul Ekman, some of you know, I think lives in the San Francisco area, right? Who has done a lot on um, cross-cultural uh, recognition of emotions, I think facial expressions particularly. And he was in a dialogue about forgiveness and anger, with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama clarified his view. He said, um, uh, Paul Ekman asked the question, now if I have a choice and I act in a way that harms others, why do you forgive me for doing so? I could have chosen not to do it. So uh, he asked that question. The Dalai Lama says, if you keep a grudge you will suffer. That's his answer. If you give forgiveness, you will feel more relieved. And then they go on and, and go into more subtle aspects of forgiveness. Um, uh, Ekman asks, it's, So it's good for the person who forgives, but doesn't that remove responsibility for the other person? And the dial an- answer, an- answer is no. I'll give an example. Now, we mentally give forgiveness to the Chinese for what the Chinese have done in Tibet, right? We mentally give forgiveness to the Chinese. That means we try not to keep negative feelings towards them because of their wrong deeds. So he's using quite clear language, because of the wrong deeds. But that does not mean we accept it, what they've done. So this spirit of forgiveness against them, as far as their action is concerned, um, means that primarily that you don't keep your negative feeling towards them. So far as their action is concerned, Sometimes you, you should use your intelligence. You deliberately have to take countermeasures, but without negative feeling, without a negative feeling. So, um, pretty clear, right? So, so again, uh, for people like uh, Dr. King, forgiveness was right at the center of the practice, but it went hand in hand with action. And that points to you know ways that, we went into this at the end of the, uh, discussion, that um, there can be what we might call a shadow connect with forgiveness, which is basically when we, when we in some way, have some sense of forgiveness, but it get, it, it's not fully uh, cognizant of those points I just made. In other words, we, where we have forgiveness, but there's maybe there's some condoning, or we use forgiveness as a reason not to take a difficult action or we use forgiveness to uh, help someone uh, avoid responsibility. You know, and I I, I was thinking of it, I think I was talking of, we know that that's been an issue, for example, in the history of Christianity. And that the whole Protestant Reformation came about because of what were called indulgences, right, in the Catholic Church. Do you remember that from early education, (laughs) you know? And that, that was, you know, it's, it's complicated. I looked it up. I, I studied indulgences last night a little bit. But um, you know, it's complicated. But it seems to be a, a way that there could be some distortion of the spirit of forgiveness, particularly for people who are powerful, right? Just the way that confession probably historically has been misused to give forgiveness where there should be action, right? And that's, that's, so that's totally important to bear in mind. So I won't go so much further into that, those examples. And so we find that, um, we find that distinction very important uh, then between, <clears throat> the distinction really is, as, as I brought out last time, between the action which needs to be uh, criticized, responded to, etc. And the, um, and the person. We, we don't forgive the action, we forgive the person. Because we recognize in a way that we're all capable of being unskillful, and we often will be, be unskillful. So the forgiveness is about, can I, can I uh, work internally with these um, barriers that might have formed, or the way that with this particular person, or with myself, my empathy leaves. And that's what I found, you know, in working with people with a judgmental mind, we found that when the judgmental mind is present, there's no empathy. The heart's basically gone. You know, I I really cannot be with this person with a kind heart, because I take a position, I'm caught in a judgment, I have a story, right? That's why really tracking all those things is really crucial for this practice. So, I thought I'd give a few stories of, of uh, forgiveness practice. Um, the stories are a little bit more dramatic, but I actually think that where we... and I'll, I'll, I'll come to the stories just in a moment, but I wanted to say that forgiveness practice, I find to be a very, very rich practice in terms of everyday small things. And, in fact, it's very helpful to do that as a way to work up to to bigger situations. And so, we can work with uh, forgiveness practice in all the small things of our lives. Someone says something in a rush, in a nasty way, I can do a moment of forgiveness practice with that person. I say something unskillful because I'm in a rush or I get reactive, I can, right in that moment, say uh, time for a little bit of forgiveness practice. I can do that when I'm driving and I do something unskillful driving or someone else does. I can do it right in the moment, you know? Or something happens that I don't like, um, and maybe I, I'm bitter about reality, with reality and I forgive reality. And I wanted to read, I wanted to read a poem, or one of, one of my uh, persons I work with, uh, uh, some of you may know her, she's in the East Bay, Reba Connell. We had done some work on forgiveness, and she was really taken by the fourth form of forgiveness where you've, that, that Larry Yang developed, which was that you actually, uh, in a sense, forgive reality, which, you know, I'm sure reality appreciates that. <laughs> uh, but this is, she, she was very taken by that, had a lot of resonance with her, and this is a, this is a poem that she wrote about that fourth aspect, again, very everyday uh, aspect of uh, forgiveness. It's called Caught. Caught on the edge of a telephone pole. Staple seizing scarf. <laughs> I see I could value the scarf's new mistake that raises prices in the Afghan rug dealer's appraisal. But the little pit in my stomach wants to grieve. How the Al- albergine, is I saying that right? <laughs> Aubergine. Aubergine's scarf was a moment before. (laughs) I forgive reality (laughs) for being so sharp, (laughs) for poking me suddenly, for unraveling the things that keep us warm. (laughs) So, very everyday, right? Very ordinary. And I find the forgiveness practice is wonderful that way. We can do it in all these small ways so it becomes alive. Uh, And and it can be in the moment, or you can do it at the end of a day. You can just look and see if there's something that's lingering, where there's some tightness or some storyline or something that's still there, and work with forgiveness in that way. And you can do it with any one of those four parts in the forgiveness practice. You don't have have to do all four. And um, generally, I find if you're... If you're doing something with someone who uh, maybe did something you think was unskillful, uh, it's usually good to also do a forgiveness line that acknowledges your potential part. <laughs> Not to make it one-sided. Just uh, um, Difficulties are extremely rarely 100% one way and 0% another. Have you found that? Okay. So... Um, a few, I wanted to tell a few stories which have been, which have been very, uh, very interesting. One, one of them was, um, and they, these are more intense examples of forgiveness. I mentioned last time that I worked over about a six or eight month period with a, um, a practitioner named Tom, Tom Hudgens, who was in his 30s. And he, he decided that he wanted to forgive the man who had murdered his sister over 20 years before. And he had this notion, he actually had this come out, I think, of a retreat that he did with me. It came kind of spontaneously out. He says, I want to forgive. And he he explored this, and he wanted to see whether it was kind of a distorted version of forgiveness. And so he worked with us, some other teachers, and he got the sense that this was genuine, that that he wanted in some way because he found there was basically something lingering in his own heart which was causing pain and suffering. And so he wanted to move to forgiveness with this person whom he had never met. And he had heard about this person as a man named John Black. And all of this is, is public. He actually wrote this up, and you might even be able to find it on the web. Um, if you look, the, it's called Story of Forgiveness in a Texas Prison. If you. These days, you can Google that and maybe you'll find that. It used to be on the Spirit Rock website. I, I checked and it wasn't there. And so Tom found out that in Texas, they actually have a program whereby offenders who are locked up can meet with people whom they have offended, who are in the case of, in Tom's case, relatives, right? And they actually have a mediated session where the people can be face-to-face. Yeah. Very interesting, and it's, it's been used a lot. I, I don't know if that probably exists in California as well. I mean, Texas is not... <laughs> I won't go there. I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay. May I be forgiven for that... <laughs> for that slightly unskillful statement. Okay, so... Um, Anyway, so Tom researched that. He actually made he he, it, he he researched and found that he could actually schedule a date to meet with the murderer, named Tom Black, who by that time was in his fifties, you know. And he took about six or eight months, and we worked one on one over that time. And he did all sorts of practices, mostly to open up his heart, you know, and to work with his heart. Did a lot of meta, a lot of metta practice, and really worked and, in a sense, prepared for that meeting you know, and went through all sorts of things. Went through, you know, do I really want to do this? Am I, am I just off on some spiritual trip? And really looked into a lot of different aspects. And eventually, and we did that prep work, and then he went down there and he was given a tour of the uh, prison that took a long time. And eventually, he actually met with this man Name, um, I think, what was it? Tom Black was it? Did I say, John? John? John Black. Yeah. John Black. Yeah. And he was able to meet with him. They met face to face. John Black uh, actually, at that time, had gone through a religious conversion in his you know, some 20-plus years in prison, and was a practicing Christian. And the the mediator knew him pretty well and, you know, knew his, what the mediator thought were his game, so to speak, and educated Tom. But uh, he went in there and he actually found, uh, he found him quite sincere. And they had this very intense meeting where Tom read a letter, which he wrote, really, um, you know, saying that, he was so sorry for what had happened. That he knew that his whole life and the life of so many people were impacted by one moment in which he was completely lost. You know, in which he was completely gone. And he had this long letter which he read to Tom. And Tom heard that. And then they had a conversation because Tom had written a letter and saying I want to live in a world where people are able to talk about things with others. And that had really touched John, and John didn't have to agree to this, and he agreed to be there. And, and they set this up. They had, I think, an hour or two, and they met, and Tom, they talked about what had happened that evening. They went into all the, all the material, and Tom said, I want to, you know, you know, I believe that you are now a good person, and I don't want to in my mind, define your life only by that one instant, okay? which is an important aspect of forgiveness because what we do, even with small stuff, is that we define someone by one action, right? Yeah. And, and it kind of stays with them. You know? And we can see that. If we, when we study the dynamics of reactivity, we can see how we do that. You know, we have you know, the, what is it called, the, the rap sheet. Yeah. This person did that, and every time we see that person, the rap sheet comes up, right? Something like that. The rap sheet is one of Sylvia's phrases, right? remember that? Yeah. And you know, or I think I, the language I use, I call it the laundry list, right? We have the laundry list of complaints. Or we might just have one, but we, we, if we don't haven't had forgiveness, we keep that. And so a key aspect of forgiveness is that we don't um, just have one event or even a series of events totally define the person. So they met together. They they met, and you know, eventually they were in tears. And Tom was expressing forgiveness, and it was received. And something happened, probably that was very significant for both of them. There was a lightning for, for Tom, and something, of course, was a, a kind of a quite a gift for this other, for this this man who who um, you know was in a way uh, asking for forgiveness every moment of his life. So very, very powerful stories like that, that we can, that we can hear of. You know, there's another story that I know of where, um, where, maybe, maybe I'll tell the story that more comes from someone that I know, and then maybe I'll, I'll finish with this, um, I'll finish, I'll finish with a story from South Africa. Let me see if I can find where my notes are. You know, about about ten or twelve years ago, I was at a, um, a gathering at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton was a monk. It was a gathering for people who were bringing together uh, spirituality and social change in some way. And there were some wonderful people there. You know, there was there was a Nobel Peace Prize winner from Argentina, Adolfo Perez Escavel. There were uh, Helen Prejong was there. You know, who wrote the I don't know if she wrote the book Dead Man Walking that led to the film. She was a she was a bundle of incredible energy. She was it was a pleasure to, to meet her. And there and I, I particularly connected with there were three people from South Africa. And they were actually had quite a bit of status. They were the equivalent of what in the US would be governors or senators, you know. And they, they came and they had been all active, they were all um, active in the African National Congress and were colleagues of Mandela and so forth. And one of them, named Blessing Finca, was also a uh, minister. And he was was a member of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that worked with uh, Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu. And that was a practice in which people worked to um, air what had happened under apartheid with the aim of reconciliation. And it had, it had a, you know, flaws to it, but it probably was the most advanced process that had ever occurred on the face of the earth, at the same time. And so, um, I, t- I, I did an interview later with Blessing, and I published it, and I wanted to just read a little bit, uh, a story, and then, and then end with something from Desmond Tutu. He tells a story of um, four activists who, in 1985, four young men were abducted, tortured, and killed, and their bodies were burned. As the perpetrators from the security forces were burning their bodies, which took seven hours. They didn't have anything else to do, so they had a barbecue and drank beer as the bodies were burning. He said, the kind of cruelty that went with the system of apartheid was just unbelievable. But all, in all of it, people came forth at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and gave testimonies and say, we want to forgive. I remember hearing the testimony of the daughter of one of the young men from Craddock, who is now 16 years old. She said, I want to forgive. I do not know whom to forgive. If only I could know who did what to my father, I would like to forgive. This was such a moving testimony by a young person who at that age we would expect to be bitter. But there was no bitterness. So often the attitude and responses of the victims to the Truth Commission were just amazing. It was an indication of the fact that the people who suffered most became so generous in spirit for some strange reason. And I asked at that point, what made that possible? And he, a- he answered, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about people who have suffered things that one would think give them the right to be angry and to demand vengeance. People who have nothing. To hear people say, I'm ready to forgive, is just unbelievable. And so, it's this quality of forgiveness points to something uh, very, very deep in the heart. You know, it's really an incredible capacity. And we can practice it in this very ordinary way. Let me end, let me see, I think I didn't, let me see if I can find this quotation that I wanted to read you. I'll, th- I'll tell it from memory <laughs> uh, let's see maybe it's here okay no, it's, I think I have it here also during that Truth and Reconciliation Commission there was there was testimony by a bunch of soldiers who had uh, carried out murders and there, were, you know, there was a large audience there And the mood was getting very, very hostile when one of the major generals spoke. And Desmond Tutu, this is in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness. Mm. The temperature had gone up by quite a few degrees by the time he had finished testifying. The next witnesses were former officers, one white and the other black. The white officer, Colonel Horst Schlobesberger, was their spokesperson. He said it was true that they had given the orders for the soldiers to open fire. The tension became so thick you could, as they say, cut it with a knife. The audience could have not been more hostile. Then he turned toward the audience and made an extraordinary appeal. I say we are sorry. I say the burden of the Bisho massacre will be on our Shoulders for the rest of our lives. We cannot wish it away, but it happened. But please, I ask specifically the victims not to forget. I cannot ask this, but to forgive us, to get the soldiers back into the community, to accept them fully, to try to understand also the pressure they were, they were under then. This is all I can do. I'm sorry. This is all I can say. I'm sorry. That crowd, uh, Desmond Tutu says, which had been close to lynching them, did something uh, quite unexpected. It broke out into thunderous applause. Unbelievable. And then after the applause died down, Desmond Tutu said this, Can we just keep a moment's silence, please? Because we are dealing with things that are very, very deep. It isn't easy, as we all know, to ask for forgiveness, and it's also not easy to forgive. But we are people who know that when someone cannot be forgiven, there is no future. Later he said, we should stay silent for a while because we are in the presence of the sacred. We do have some time for any reflections or any, any questions. Anything that struck you. And again, you know, this can be a very ordinary everyday practice as well as being something that manifests in these very uh kind of extreme conditions as well. Any thoughts, please, you i just I just came back from weeks in Vietnam and Cambodia. Oh yeah, yeah. And when
1: takeaways for me was I was just blown away by how in 40 years it's a long time, but in a way it's not, that those people have forgiven each other they've mm. forgiven us mm. it's quite amazing yeah. and I don't know to what to attribute that to but it is a Buddhist country mm-hmm. but I don't know if there was any organized
0: Anything to try and heal those wounds. And, mm-hmm. But it was clearly so. Yeah. And it was very impressive. Yeah, very very powerful, you know, the you know, just <coughs> noting the um, extent to which there seems to be large degrees of forgiveness in Vietnam and was it also Cambodia? Yeah, but Vietnam specifically. Particularly in, in Vietnam and I don't think that they actually had the equivalent of a reconciliation. Commission, that that has occurred in about 20 countries, you know. And we also, I, I just also want to maybe take this opportunity to say there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. That forgiveness, as we're interpreting, is particularly an inner process where we work with our own reactivity. Reconciliation is an interpersonal process, and it depends on the other person. And sometimes we may forgive, and the other person may not at all be interested in reconciliation, and there may not be the basis for trust. Right? We can have forgiveness without reconciliation. We can have forgiveness without there being trust in the relationship, because it's really about our own reactivity. But very beautiful to hear of what and of what you uh, discovered on that trip. And
1: and they haven't forgotten either. It yeah. And swept under. We went to a museum yeah. where. You know, there are all the photographs of the age of orange and the
0: napalm and the landmines. Yeah. But, nevertheless... Yeah, so apparently not, you know, clearly uh, not forgetting in certain ways, but something has happened. And I think the, the major emphasis on the Buddhist tradition related to forgiveness is really pointing to the possibility of loving kindness and the negative consequences of reactivity, you know, um, compulsive anger and so forth. That's, that's there in the text, you know, yeah. But a great, great, great story. It'd be great to hear more about that, to know more about what they did. Other reflections, questions? Yeah, please.
1: Situation that was
0: interpersonal. Yeah. And once I was asking for forgiveness. Yeah. But there is also that category where we're trying to do the inner work of forgiveness in a situation where the other person does not think they're doing anything wrong. Yeah. Um, Could you speak a little more about that? Are there different tools to Yeah. So, what about the situation where? Um, I have a sense that someone has acted unskillfully or has done things which I take to be quote-unquote harmful, but the other person uh, doesn't see that. And um, so this, this is where we can really distinguish between the inner work of forgiveness and the interpersonal work of forgiveness and reconciliation. And... Uh, I think we can really make quite a distinction between them, that I can do my inner work of forgiveness no matter what is happening in the relationship. And sometimes, especially where someone uh, doesn't want to or doesn't somehow see this as a problem, uh, that might be all I can do. And that is still very significant. So I think it's very important to see that, that forgiveness practice is always valuable no matter what the other person's doing because it's about my reactivity, especially. So what to do with the other person, uh, that would start um, demanding this this expanded toolbox that I was referring to with skillful speech. All sorts of things would depend on the nature of the relationship, what you can say. You know, there might be some people who you could say quite easily to, you know, um, uh, could we talk about this? I'd like to tell you what my experience of this was. And for some people, that would actually work. For other people, the level of denial may be at the level of character. And it probably would not be helpful to suggest psychotherapy. (laughs) 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 When in actuality, that might be very helpful. (laughs) You know, so... um, So it's going to depend on the person, the relationship, all sorts of things what's what 's possible it's be very helpful to have a uh, t- toolbox involving skillful speech the for in this culture, what often is a starting point in terms of skillful speech is to as much as you can talk about your own experience rather than give the uh, analysis of the other's behavior. Most people would experience that as being judgmental so but uh, but then it's a, it's an art form to know how to do that with a particular situation or a particular person. But hopefully the person you're talking about is very amenable to dialogue and would simply hearing you talk of your own experience would see the light. <laughs> yeah, uh, some uh, the the emphasis on I statements in some settings is a reflection on that, is a reflection of that, that it's, people use different languages. There's a, someone who wrote a book. Who's that person who wrote the book on non, na, uh, non, uh, non-defensive communication? Sharon Ellison. Yeah, there's a whole book, a very nice book, and non Communication also brings that out. But there are quite a few books where it's basically saying that when people are polarized, there's a breakdown of empathy people resort to positions, and it's very hard, how do you cut through that? And one way to cut through it is that if you actually don't go to anything which could be construed as judgmental, but stay with more personal statements about this is what my experience was, and one has to be quite careful about your language, about one's language. You know, really being, because it's, it's almost as if any even slightly uh, judgmental language or anything could almost be interpreted about that, the person goes back to shut down. very common. And so we have to be quite skillful. So I language, uh, you know, what, um, some of my teachers on speech called radical reflexivity. Dan Klerman and Moody Tanisker had a phrase, radical reflexivity, so one's language refers to oneself when you're talking about an experience. That's very, very helpful. Again, it's not going to necessarily work. Please.
1: Helpful to me in a situation like that is that, um, as you said earlier, and I did the forgiveness practice each day for the past. Oh, week great! You asked us to do, and, great. and I found that, as you said, when I offered forgiveness to someone and reflected on it, I invariably found that there was something in myself that I needed to ask forgiveness for. Yeah, and the other realization that came to me is that when people do things that harm me or cause me suffering, my reflection is that they do it out of confusion and ignorance, they mm-hmm. don't do it out of malice, and that arouses compassion in me mm-hmm. for them and their situation. Mm-hmm. And you know, in many cases it's someone that you love already, and I mean, if you can apply that love universally then you would feel compassion mm-hmm. towards them. Yeah. And it doesn't change the situation necessarily or their character or their behavior,
0: but it makes me feel much better about it. Yeah, so it's very beautiful sets of reflections, particularly about how what we might call unskillful actions or actions which we see as harmful, typically um, can be seen as coming out of confusion, maybe uh, lack of clarity, uh, maybe feeling hurt themselves, feeling in pain in some way, feeling whatever, anxiety. And that uh, that when we actually reflect on that, we can have more compassion, and that's that's beautiful, and actually is very, very, very important part of all of this. You know, it's like that. That's I was calling that the pointing to the wisdom factor, to bring that in. Sometimes just to reflect, which again takes us out of our position, takes us out of our reactivity, and we're actually being empathic at that moment. So it's a it's a powerful and sometimes difficult response to come to. But you know, if I can say, oh, what's happening for this other person right, who acted this way? That is an empathic move, which is, um, I, think, I think it's advanced to do that in a difficult situation. But when we actually go there, we often find, again, something like the truism, hurt people hurt people. Right? And, we can, and we can see that. I know from doing the work, for example, on judgmental mind, the way I understand being judgmental is that judgments are a kind of defense mechanism, and they they always come out of some pain, either uh, pain that's apparent or pain that's hidden, some unacknowledged pain. And that that that's that's a short summary of, of that. I don't ex- you know expect you to just take that on face value, but but just maybe making the connection that you know so. When, uh, from, from doing a fair amount of work on judgmental mind, I, I often, when I hear judgments, I tend to feel the pain in the person or in myself, right? And again, that changes things. That makes it much easier to move to forgiveness or to compassion and move away from the polarizing uh, tendencies. There's a last short one. We have time for one last short one. Yeah.
1: I I don't know what your plan is for the next time, but I would really appreciate expanding on that
0: last uh, last forgiveness practice. Oh, yeah. uh, The reality, forgiving reality. Yeah. Uh, That would be helpful. Great. (laughs) So a request to expand on that last part of the forgiveness practice, which is... We could say it's forgiving reality or forgiving the way things are. It could also be, it could also be something like, I forgive life for having this suffering in my life. Right? It could it could take different forms. It could also be, I forgive the way things are for what's been hard for me, or the way, or for this loss, or for this difficulty. It could be, it could take that form, you know. It could be. It could be in relation to the larger world. I forgive the world. You know, I for, you know Larry Yang likes to express it in terms of I forgive reality for there being a first and second noble truth. <laughs> you know, in the, in the Buddhist in the Buddhist teachings, the first noble truth is that there is suffering, in in the form of reactivity. We could say I forgive. I forgive the setup <laughs> that human beings have so much reactivity, right? And that we're just not living on this, uh, we're not living in paradise with everyone being fully awake and kind to each other, but that there's, there's meanness, there's suffering, there's brutality, and, you know, and, and you know, probably most of us uh, you know, uh, are, you know, have a certain amount of uh, protection from what large numbers of people in the world experience. You know, um, you know the newspapers are full with with unimaginable horrors, right? And and so for some people, the forgiveness goes there as well. So yeah, I, I hear that request. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't taking my few comments now as the <laughs> <laughs> response. So I I'll, I hear that, but that's intriguing, isn't it? It brings a different perspective. So I'll invite you, if you wish, to continue with the uh, forgiveness practice in the next week. I'll maybe bring in that piece, but uh, my intention is to continue with this larger theme but bring in different practices and different emphases. And I'm thinking to focus especially on compassion, which is already in the discussion, as it were, in the room, like with your comments about... But uh, compassion is is, uh, quite wonderful. So I think I'll... May, bring, may touch on forgiveness a little bit, but bring in compassion much more. And, um, and again, try to do your own practice with any challenging situations and bring, bring back your own stories. And we can, we can compare notes. But may you not have any really difficult experiences in the next week, but if you do, <laughs> you are prepared. <laughs> so, and may the fruits of uh, today be... Uh, there for us, and be there for uh, others in our life, and ultimately, we offer the fruits of our time to uh, all beings. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.